Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Bonusode 5 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. I make things and I write things and I help people make other things. You sure do. And it's a first tonight. We're, uh, for the first time ever, taking a look at um, a new release. It's a night of firsts, quite frankly. That's true. Um, So we're taking a look at uh, Halloween 2018, which came out this past week, but we are doing it. Uh, with our first ever returning guest, you may remember him from our episode on Halloween H2O. He is the director of the Shutter exclusive film Ruin Me. A warm welcome back to Mr. Preston DeFrancis. Preston, hello. What's up, guys? Hey, hey there he is. <laughs> hello. Well, welcome back, man. <laughs> Thanks for stopping in. Absolutely. I'm I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, so um, when we last spoke to you, obviously, we talked a little bit about... Um, we were kind of looking ahead to this film and we were talking about, I think we all kind of came up roughly on the same side of the line and we all said that kind of like, we all had a little bit of a reservation about the fact that David Gordon Green's Halloween was going to wipe the slate clean and function as a kind of direct sequel to the to the original. But we all kind of said that we were going to go into it with um, an open mind and kind of just hope for the best. So, yes. um, so it seemed only right, considering that we spoke about it like reasonably in depth that time, to have you back on for a kind of, uh, to a kind of debrief. Now we've all seen it. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> Before we get into this, we weren't going to do a 30-second synopsis on this one, but Preston, you were insistent. <laughs> well, I really, I, I feel like I famously bombed on the H2O one, so I wanted another shot. We are doing full spoilers, right? This We should warn everyone, right? Like, that's okay. We're doing full spoilers. Yes, Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. This will be absolutely riddled and littered with spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want your experience sullied in any way, then please, please fuck off now. But however, if you don't give a fuck, then hang around. Yeah, and if you do, fuck off, please come back after you've seen it. Um, <laughs> you but, have been warned. But yeah, no, Preston, quite right. It is worth mentioning that from the outset because, um, yeah, we're going to we're gonna go right in there with uh, spoilers. But <clears throat> first things first, Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? <laughs> we do indeed. Be. Preston, are you ready, sir? I am ready. Okay, three, two, one, go. After 40 years at Smith's Grove under the care of Dr. Sartain after the death of Dr. Loomis, Michael Myers escapes. Laurie Strode has been training for this her whole life, but in doing so, she has pushed away her only daughter, Karen, but has a better relationship with her granddaughter, Allison. Back in Haddonfield on Halloween night, Michael goes on a killing spree. Meanwhile, Laurie and Karen hole up in Laurie's house, and Allison is being taken to join them along with Dr. Sartain. On the way, they encounter Michael's and, surprise, Dr. Sartain is evil and was responsible for Michael's escape, but Michael kills Sartain and now it's Michael versus three generations Time. of Strode women. Oh, I got so close! That was, but, but to be fair, that was not just a synopsis. That was most of the plot beats. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. In terms of the sheer scale of the undertaking, that's one of the best ones. I think that was nice. the, nice. the novelisation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome.
awesome. I, I, I worked I worked on that, guys. I worked on it. No, yeah, no, we could tell. That uh, fills me with both joy and sadness that you took the time to do that. I know, I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> right, okay, so let's talk a little bit broadly to begin with. So first off, we're kind of, first thing that I kind of want to get your take on, are both of you, right. is that kind of on either side of the opening credits were reintroduced to both Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. And I would like both of you guys input and your kind of take on how you felt both of those reintroductions worked. Yeah, you know what? Actually, let me stay for one second. Let me let me let me say one sidebar actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, going through the experience right now of having my film ruin me out in the universe. Yes. I I've had the experience of listening to podcasters review and talk about my film. Mm-hmm. And it can be occasionally a tough experience to hear people who have no idea if I'm ever going to listen to what they're saying, you know, to talk in very critical ways about the film. Of course. Right? You know, I, I had an initial little bit of hesitation about doing this because I feel like I'm going to be critical of certain aspects of, of the film. But, you know, I'm trying to and, – and I'm not a film critic by, mm-hmm. you know, profession. I'm a filmmaker. But I'm, I'm going to try to just really – try to look at this in a, in a, in a way that I, just as a fan, not as a filmmaker or anything like that, but just, yeah. just as a fan and, and, uh, and, and, and looking at the stories. And, uh, I, I just wanted to say that because, you know, if, if anyone ever involved with a film does eventually hear this, I'm, <laughs> I'm coming to it from a place of love. I'm, that's, that's I'm, perfectly, that's perfectly yeah, fine. That's me worth too. saying. I'm, I'm no stranger to reviews of my own work. Yeah, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I very much uh, agree with you in, in regards to that. Uh, I, yeah. I, I have had virtually nobody review anything I've ever done, but I still agree. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, um, but no, that's 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 worth saying. So, uh, so yeah, Preston, what was your take on, let's say, the pre-credits then and the kind of, and our reacquaintance with Michael? Yeah, so I'm, I, I came to this by watching the original Halloween with the original mono soundtrack. Mm-hmm fully as it was in 1978 which is how we were told to experience this movie okay and so as the the lights came up on this movie i tried to just think in my mind of only that first movie Mm -hmm. and and this is a pair to that movie and given that given that context i was right away a little bit jarred by the fact that the original halloween is so shot in so so many wide shots and with such distance and instantly we're we're brought into this world through so many so many close-ups of so many different people and there are so few people who populate the original halloween i feel like we saw more faces in this opening than we did on the entirety of the 78 halloween yeah and we have these new characters who I'm on the surface very intrigued with because these podcasters could bring a, a unique POV on on Michael and Laurie. And we're very early treated to this podcaster who we're told is an award-winning podcaster screaming at Michael Myers to speak. Yeah. Yes. And I was not so I was not so feeling that scene as as the kids might say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I pretty much agree with that. I I thought that when the when the kind of when they first went out into the yard and kind of saw him there and stuff like that, it was kind of that. But I think that as that scene tried to ratchet up the tension when he holds up the mask and he's kind of screaming at him to speak, that I that didn't work for me at all. No, I agree with that. I feel like purely from a logistical point of view, that man would have been dragged away immediately the minute he pulled that mask out of his bag. 
and tried to provoke someone who is completely deranged um, and yes. quite dangerous. Although now, now I've seen the movie twice, and I know Mitch, you said you've seen it twice, I've right? Seen it twice, yeah, yeah. So you know, in hindsight, we could say, well, maybe Doctor Sartain was hoping that they would activate Michael by this, so Fair. that's why mm -hmm. you know he was allowed to continue. So if we're going to logic police it, maybe you know, there's a, there's an answer to that logic police question. That's reasonable. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I want to see Pulitzer Prize. I want to see Sarah Koenig from Serial. Uh, <laughs> I want to see her talking to Michael Myers, not some guy who's yelling at him to speak. A, a documentarian has to, like, befriend their subject no matter how difficult that subject is. And is there any chance – I mean, we all have a history of Michael Myers and know that he's not likely to, you know, respond to this. But this guy – should be going in with a light touch and trying to reach out to this person as a human being, not yell at him to speak. I, it just start started me off on a foot of inauthenticity. Yeah, and I think that, and I, and well, I see what you're saying about you know, like we we have a history of Michael Myers going in, but the guy is a true crime broadcaster, and I think that the way the characters presented were kind of to assume that so does he. Yeah, but. He doesn't really, right? I mean, well, it doesn't seem that. <laughs> like, not by how he acts, anyway. No one does in this universe because he's been locked away for forty years. No, no one has seen Michael Myers for forty years in this universe, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we can all kind of agree that's like it's kind of it's a little bit of a flat thing out of the gate. I agree that inauthenticity is probably a good way of putting it. I, I, I like the visual that kind of opening visual of seeing Michael kind of standing alone in the yard. That is fair, though. So opening credits, pretty cool. I thought. Yeah, loved them. Yep. One of the highlights mm -hmm. for me, actually. <laughs> so, yep, everything's, everything's looking good, sounding good. Yeah, sure. And I'm pretty much straight in with um, a reintroduction of sorts to Laurie when we see more of the podcasters and they're kind of going to... They want to hunt her down, they want to hear her side, mm -hmm. want to get her to go meet with him and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I think the way that we're reintroduced to Laurie is fine. I think that the notion of having led a life of seclusion and being kind of apprehensive about talking to anybody and stuff like that and kind of talking to people who are trying to get out of her or make her revisit in the way that she does all kind of hangs together reasonably well. I have one issue here, Go and on. that is an issue of Laurie's entrance. Laurie Strode is a vaunted character. In the world of this Halloween, we haven't seen her for 40 years. Mm -hmm. The first time we see her on screen, she's walking up in a medium shot, placing a chair on the ground to talk to the podcasters. For that character... I want an entrance. Yeah, like a little more, you know? a little more ceremony. S something, and it, you know, here's a moment where we can compare it to H two O. Her modern day entrance in H two O is that scream taking her out of that dream. You know, yeah. the scream queen is introduced with a with a crazy scream. You know, and and I just felt that that the literal first time we saw her needed to be a moment. Um, they actually make more of a moment of when a character we haven't met, uh, Hawkins, mm -hmm. is introduced than Laurie's reintroduction. And so I, I, I like the concept of how she's living her life. I just wish that we had had a mo um, true entrance for her. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, though, and, and maybe this is because everything that's happened in the, in the intervening 40 years and, I guess, the effect that Michael's touch has had on her life, but she's lost something to be coming straight off the back. I mean, obviously you can follow Laurie's journey, if you like, more clearly throughout Halloween 2, H2O, and even into Resurrection. But here, it seems the words that are coming out of her mouth make sense. 
but to me it feels like a totally different character i agree i understand and i agree i i feel like she and i think we'll get we'll continue to touch on this as we get we get into it but something it's the movie isn't focused enough on her for us to fully understand and live with her and then we have and, and, and jumping ahead to one of the final moments when Karen says, oh, this place isn't a cage. It's a trap. Right, yeah. So are we meant to have felt like that Laurie has been living in this cage the whole time? At one point in time, Karen says she's agoraphobic. Now, is that a lie that she told to the granddaughter? Or is Laurie actually presenting herself to the world as agoraphobic? What I think is I never actually felt like she was caged in this place no she's absolutely not she's out gadding about she's out hanging about outside the granddaughter's school she's hanging mm-hmm. out with the granddaughter at the kind of playing fields yeah the restaurant uh yeah she, yep, she's restaurant. out all the fucking time yep now if she is in a cage the one time she could ever possibly go out was when michael is being transferred which she does go out for that right yeah but it didn't feel like this was my one time to venture into the real world. It just felt like, oh, this is, you know, a person going out to watch this thing. Yeah, so no, I just it, never it, felt a focus around her character. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I get that. And um, yeah, and, and I mean, she's she's like the heroine of the piece. And you're is. right, you're right. There's there's very little time really spent on what she's been doing in that time. And mm-hmm. yeah, and, and I agree about the, the agoraphobia thing is there's no kind of like nervously crossing the threshold or anything like that. She's right. Now, again, that could have been intended as a lie to explain to the granddaughter, like, oh, this is why you don't see her. But that is true. There's, that is like, true. Mu- there's a there's a muddiness there about it where I'm not sure if that was meant to be a lie or if that was meant to describe how she typically is. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's no, I think I think I think that's fair. That's that that didn't ring true with me either. The focus is entirely now on Michael, and in fairness to this film, I think it does quite a good job of making Michael feel menacing again and kind of feel vital. Mm-hmm. But I feel that that's at the detriment of characters like Laurie. I would hope for more of a balance. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk for a second about we go to Michael's point of view for a while. Yeah. He encounters the podcasters, okay, mm-hmm. and talk about narrative pills for a second. Oh, yes, bringing them back. Just so happens that Michael Myers goes to the same gas station <laughs> where the podcasters who have his mask happen to be. Yes. Okay? So that's, that's every day. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and, you know, look, bigger movies than this are guilty of coincidences like this. I, I remember the... Oscar-winning screenplay for Little Miss Sunshine uh, has a coincidence that's not dissimilar from this, where uh, Steve Carell runs into his ex-lover at a, a, ga- a gas station at a rest stop, and that's to catapult his character forward. Yeah, <laughs> and that script won an Oscar, and there's a big coincidence in there. But just wanted to point out that we have a we have a pretty big coincidence that we're asked to see here. So I, I'm interested what your perspective is on the scene where he dispatches of the podcasters in the gas station restroom, which to me reminded me in theory of him coming upon the mother and young girl in a in a rest stop bathroom in H2O. How, how did you guys feel about that sequence? Mitch, you, you've got an opinion on this scene. Um, you're quite, you liked it, you're quite a fan. I, uh, yeah, I say nothing of what we're talking about there, about kind of how that, how that actually comes together. And I think the comparison you're making is a fair one. Um, in terms of how it actually unfolds, I think it's pretty good. First off, actually, before I say anything else, I one of the, one of the few things that I wish wasn't in the trailer for this 
was uh, the Fistful of Teeth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wish the Fistful of Teeth wasn't in the film. Okay. You have a problem with that? Yeah. Uh, to me, it doesn't seem like a very Michael thing to do. It's quite. It doesn't, does it? No, it's, he's not a taunting serial killer. He's not Freddy. Interesting. And how about the way that he dispatches of, in particular, the 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 male podcaster? The level of brutality, to me, was more reminiscent of the Rob Zombie take on the Michael Myers I character. Was, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it reminded me a lot of the Joe Grizzly scene from Rob Zombie's Halloween with uh, Ken Forey in the toilet cubicle. Mm-hmm. Very similar in the terms of... The, I guess the physicality of it and and the and the brutality and kind of there's there's almost an ugliness about it you know there's a that's well, a nasty scene it, yeah it is and for me I'm sitting there firmly with Halloween 1978 in my mind mm-hmm. and there's nothing even vaguely like that in in that movie that's yeah absolutely yeah. as at first thing i thought when i was watching it was of rob zombies films yeah and that i i don't think that that's what these filmmakers would hope that we would think of <laughs> no I, I could... I, that's that that's wow yeah that's fair that's reasonable i would say one thing one thing i would say is and i mean for like these kind of moments in the film i think that the way they're actually put together you feel every hit like i think that they're yes like they're well yeah. like they're like they're, like technically in terms of like how they resonate when you're watching them i think it works really well but I think it's a fair point when you say that when you're watching it, when you're supposed to be watching it with only the 1978 film in your mind, then it is a little bit of a too big of a departure. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that's a great analysis, like that we feel every hit. Is that what I want out of a Halloween movie, though? Yeah, that's, uh, sure. yeah, that's, 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 that's the, the two sides of the coin, isn't it? In H2O, he goes into that bathroom to steal the purse mm-hmm. so that he can have a car to, to get to Carrie Tate, sure, right? Yeah. And so our tension, we're put in the shoes of the mother who's afraid that her young daughter is going to be a victim here. And we're afraid of that as well because of our history with the character. To me, in the H2O scene, there's a lot of tension in that scene because we're afraid that there, he's going to kill one or both of these people. And then he doesn't. And that, to me, feels closer to the character that I fell in love with, mm-hmm. where he's creating these tense scenes, but not necessarily are we feeling this visceral brutality. This iteration of Michael, I suppose. Yeah, there's something still vaguely human about Michael in the first one. And I, th- I think that humanity in Michael is missing in this. And I think yeah. even and that humanity, I think, runs through quite a few of the films. Because there's moments where he takes time to reflect on who he is or who he's dealing with. or mm-hmm. and, and that, to me, every scene with Michael here is just designed to gear up to someone dying. Yes. So so basically, they, they are putting forward a version of the character, which I don't think is necessarily at odds with 1978. Mm-hmm. A version of the character in which he is like Jaws, where he is an embodiment of evil and does not discriminate basically about who he kills it's just that's who they're putting forward this that this version of the character is it's closer to a jason Voorhees. yes yes yeah yes yeah reasonable see around this time uh when obviously off the back of this you kind of get the moment where he puts the mask back on sure and i put together a short list of things that i wish weren't in the trailer like i touched on a minute ago yeah and i'm not saying that necessarily none of these should have been in the trailers but I certainly don't think that all four of the Fistful of Teeth over the sure. cubicle. Fistful of Molars. Yep. Fistful of Molars, if you like. Yep. And um, the 
well, the him putting the mask back on for the first time. Right. Yeah. The cupboard babysitter jump scare from later. Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea yep. to have put that in the trailer. And him reaching through and grabbing Laurie through the glass, uh, the panes of glass on the door later during the kind of final standoff. I think that putting all four of those in the trailer is absolute lunacy because I think that they're possibly yeah. they're four of the biggest moments in the film. I think that maybe use one. agreed. Because you because you can't have none. You, you can't have nothing in the trailer from this kind of things. But I mm-hmm. think that I think it was showing way too many cards way too early. Yeah, um, and I I feel like we were therefore ahead of anyone who'd seen the trailer was therefore ahead of a lot of those a lot of those yeah. the tension of those moments. I also think that uh, the fact that the second trailer, I think the most recent trailer, had almost that entire one shot that's kind of lampooning Halloween too. Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah, in, I, actually, the trailer. I, I watched um, I watched the trailer back today. I had to just remind myself while I was scribbling things down, and I'd forgotten that that was there. Because you're right, it's almost the whole thing. Yeah, and uh, I think that's that's craziness because again, that's that's an amazing scene, and it's very for the fans, and it's completely squandered in a trailer. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, I mean, I've got absolutely no problem seeing Michael walking about and raising a knife and doing all that stuff in the trailer. That's the point of a trailer. But I think to give away one of your biggest gags, like the wardrobe gag, I think is madness because yeah. nothing comes close to that for the rest of the film, I don't think. Yeah. And and that also took the air out of the moment when uh, the kid she's babysitting, his name is Julian, yes. asks her to go into the room and she play acts that she sees Michael Myers and that's asking him to leave. We we Because we know the moment with the closet is coming – we know that that's a fake out as well. So those trailers really tip the hand a lot. Yeah, and, and obviously not everybody watches trailers. Some people actively sure. avoid them. And sure. I I tried, but I'm weak. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I kind of wish I hadn't. Yeah, same. Yeah. What, yeah. what did you guys think of that care of, of Vicky, uh, the babysitter, and the character of Julian? Did you? I, I love that scene by the way did you yeah. what did you guys think i thought that little kid was amazing he, he was absolutely hilarious yes like in, yes. In, in terms of in terms of delivery and stuff like that i thought that he was absolutely perfect yeah i think hysterical um, real mm-hmm. very nice like we bought their relationship you know like you just love you love them both because of how good they were together yeah, you know that's so true actually it, 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 it totally sells you on their relationship absolutely right out of the gate like yeah. that's believable from the absolute drop one thing i would say is that as good as that kid is and he is and uh send dave first should absolutely be on a t-shirt <laughs> um, <laughs> yes yes i agreed brilliant that's one of the best lines of the film <laughs> it is um but then you it's it's kind of counterbalanced by lines like i have peanut butter on my penis yeah which just, but i actually would argue that judy greer and i can't remember the girl's name who plays the daughter andy something oh, um no. i would argue that they could easily be removed and that the granddaughter in fact only exists to add in some kids. It's uh, Andy Matichek. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, that the granddaughter character only exists so we have an avenue to hang out with some teenagers. Yeah. Unfortunately, that feels correct. I think there's something really interesting about the notion of Judy Greer's character, Karen, is very damaged. And mm-hmm. so now we've skipped a generation. So there's the, a closer relationship between Laurie and Allison. That is a is conceptually really cool. Yep. But it it is not a fully baked idea. Yeah. And there's su- such a lack of focus, and we have to spend so much time with 
Allison and her boyfriend in the troubles and the friend zone guy trying to kiss her, you know, like that we don't get the full mileage out of the potential of those things. Yeah. And they, and they unfortunately could be cut. And that's, that's too bad because that's conceptually, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it would have been just as easy to introduce a bunch of random teenagers that Michael comes across while he's wandering house to house, which is what he does. I think that that's actually a, between the two of you, you've described that in a way that I, I was kind of, I felt like I was skirting around and couldn't quite land on. Right. But you're right. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I think that like it sets up something that dynamically could have been really interesting and then doesn't really have an interest in following it to completion. And that frustrates me in a couple of ways because I think that, like say, I think that it would have made the character stuff in the film a little bit more compelling, but also... um. Uh, Judy Greer, I think, in general, is routinely just great in things. I think she's sorely mm-hmm. underutilized here. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I think she's massively underutilized here. And yeah. and when you do Absolutely. get when you do get her readdressing her childhood in not that in things that aren't in flashback, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. rather than her kind of like getting into anything, you just kind of they set up a Jamie Lee Curtis line. Uh, Laurie says something, and then Judy Greer, um, she kind of like tuts, rolls her eyes, and is just like, "This was my childhood." And I, you do know that she. Yeah, I think that happens yeah. like two or three times, yeah. and that was kind of frustrating to me because she's always great, and she's good in this. Yeah. With what she's given, but I which think that, which is not which much. is not a great deal, which I think is also a shame. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, yeah, there's um, they line up a lot of stuff there, and they don't knock any of it down. Um, yeah. N- not to be completely negative here, going back to friend zone guy. Um, I also liked him, but I particularly, mm-hmm. I particularly liked the scene with the security lights. Yes, great scene. Yeah. Great scene. I thought that worked really well. All that stuff's really good. And, yeah. And um, unfortunately, none of that was spoiled by the trailer. So that was a true, you know, that was I felt like a true, truly discovering a, a total really cool set piece with the motion detector and the scariness of it, and a great, great scene. Great but scene. still, I don't think it lands as hard as the the scene with the, with Michael in the wardrobe. Nothing does. I don't think. Yeah, right. Which, yeah, which is a bit of a shame. Just generally, I, I think we've spoken about quite a few of the kills in here. There's one that I do like a lot, both okay. in terms of the actual kill and also how it's kind of put together. Which is, it's a woman who uh, she's kind of looking through her. Oh, the, when Michael comes, blinds and he comes up behind her yeah, and right, uh, okay. kind of stabs her through the throat. Which, mm-hmm. um, which I think that like the whole look of that is great, but I love the fact that the camera stays outside the window. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it just kind of lingers on her, and then so you know what's coming before she does, kind of thing. But I like the the entire way they put that together. I thought that was really, that I could... thought it was really cool. It reminded me a little bit of something that was in um the eyes of my mother. All right, okay. It did something very similar to that in that, but uh, yeah, no, I thought that was really cool. cool. I want to touch on that because I thought that was a really good moment. Yeah, that whole thing was there was a that's a hard thing that they set up and they really pulled it off. I th- I. I was I love that whole sequence. Yeah. I would be curious to know what was changed in the reshoots. Yeah, me too. Hopefully when, you know, when the Blu-ray comes out and we get a little further down the line, we'll learn more. We'll learn more of those. And I will say I will absolutely buy the Blu-ray. I'm Yeah, same. Yeah, I'm a completionist and I I'm not not going to buy that. Same. I want to ask a little bit about because uh, we're kind of we're getting to the point where he kind of resurfaces in the story in a significant way, but just in general, um, what are we thinking about our uh, our Doctor Loomis surrogate in here, uh, Doctor Sartain? Uh, both character and performance wise, where are we? <laughs> I've got opinions. I feel like Doctor Sartain, the character and the performance, is just a guy playing Donald Pleasance because that's what we expect. Yeah, I I think it's possibly the the biggest single problem well it's one of the biggest <laughs> single problems is this character and the fact that it is not 
it is not Dr. Loomis. Yeah. He, he, he's such at an arm's length from us throughout so much of the movie, just because he's not in very many scenes. He is passed out for a, a bunch of them. <laughs> yep. And very, you know, in terms of screen time, very young in the character's screen time, he's given a huge twist where he is in fact revealed to be the one responsible for Michael's escape. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that that that, that was a that for me was a, a jump the shark moment. In particular, entirely. when he put on the mask, it it oh, was, that was the, oh that was awful. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was it was it was it was bad. I'm, I was in a way I was happy that the plot thread was quickly extinguished by Michael's steel-toed boots. Sure. You know, if that had been Doctor Loomis, if that had been Donald Pleasance, and we believe so firmly he is the good guy and all of a sudden oh my gosh it's a twist he actually is all these years of studying michael has twisted him into an evil character that could have been great but the reality is donald pleasance is no longer with us and that character rightly was not in the movie and so having this person we have almost no relationship with it just felt wrong to me yeah, I, I agree entirely. It might have been around that point at, at, during the screening. We were at Mitch where someone at the back shouted, SHITE! That did happen, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something else about this, actually, and um, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but see, um, see in general, like plot twists and things like this that people generally think are easy to see coming, I have a tendency to not spot in advance i feel like either i am more ignorant these people or i have subconsciously trained my brain to ignore them the signs however because dr sartain appears sporadically in the first act and then is absent for a really long time the minute that he resurfaced even i was like yeah there's something up with this guy and has a Mm. vaguely evil sounding name It does sound huh. quite a bit. It does sound quite a bit like Satan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> right. Um. But yeah. No. Um. And like I say, I am generally I notoriously like hurtle past road signs for twists, and even I kind of clocked it when he appeared. I thought yeah. that yeah, I, I had a feeling something wasn't right. You know, I was trying to really keep my mind a blank. I didn't feel way ahead of it, but even if I had that, that wasn't the problem with that twist of, of us being ahead of it. You know, like there. There's something more fundamentally wrong about that twist, I think, than it being broadcast, you know? Yeah, yeah that's fair. So I was going to ask this, although I kind of feel like we've spoken quite a bit about what the film does wrong. Right. Or what we think that the film does wrong. I think that a lot of the stuff kind of in the first half is pretty solid. Yeah. Like in terms of about the, like some of the actual interactions, some of the way f- some things are framed, I kind of feel like this film peters out quite unforgivably as it heads towards its end. Mm-hmm. Um, and... First off, I would like to know if you guys agree, but also if you do, at what point do you think it really starts to lose momentum? And maybe you're huh. pressing, you've kind of answered that right now when you said that you kind of felt like that, the Dr. Chardin thing was the jump the shark moment. Um, I, I feel like to me, there was, there, it wasn't a, a single, a single, that was a jump the shark moment for me, but there wasn't a single momentum killer moment. It was a series of stop and starts for me. I, I, I never felt 100% like it was on rails. Okay, here I think is my overall biggest issue is that we set up the character of Laurie Strode as this person who has been this doomsday Michael Myers preparer for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, she has driven away her only daughter, Karen. The, The best comparison, and I'm sure they looked at this movie for inspiration that I can think of, is Terminator 2. Sarah Connor has been preparing and preparing for 
Judgment Day or for the Terminator to come back. And she sort of warped her relationship with her son, John Connor, because of that. So that's all backstory. In the world of Terminator 2, what is the next gear of that storyline, of a person who is obsessed with this? The next gear of that is she herself becomes a Terminator. She makes the decision that she needs to assassinate Miles Dyson, the man's most responsible for creating Skynet and the Terminators, who has a wife and a kid and is totally not nefarious. So she, she decides that she wants to assassinate this man for a crime he hasn't committed yet. And that is a new gear to that character trait. And what it allows her to do is she goes to kill him and she's not able to do it. And her son, John Connor, who is a, just a boy, rushes in and is try, was trying to stop it. And now all of a sudden we have a new dynamic for that relationship where she realizes that she doesn't need to care for him anymore. He is now caring for her. So this movie lacks another gear for Laurie's character. And without that other gear to redefine her relationship with Michael, to redefine her relationship with Karen, it never is able to get on rails for me. Yeah. For me, I feel like the film peters out when it realises that they don't really know how best to wrap it up. Obviously, you're putting out a film, you've no idea how the film's going to be received, presumably because it's part of this enormous franchise, you assume it's going Mm -hmm. to do quite well. But you are still faced, certainly at the writing and production process, you're faced with two very clear paths you go down here. One, you kill Michael, or you very clearly leave Michael alive. And there is zero attempt made to even risk pushing it in any direction. Yep. When we last see Michael, he is clearly alive. Yep. And to me, I mean, even in a Friday the 13th film, right? Jason dies, we know he's going to come back, right? Past Halloween films, Michael is perhaps dead, perhaps missing at the end. We know he's going to come back. To me, it feels like they were just like, how do we do this? How do we wrap this up in a fashion that leaves it open, but at the same time as a satisfying ending? And they don't, for my money. Absolutely not. It's very soft. It was surprisingly soft to me. And again, I look at H2O. That ending was not soft. That was a definitive ending. And in comparison between the two, I I mean, do you want a soft ending or do you want something that's awesome? And not to beat the H2O drum too loudly, but (laughs) so Laurie's character in that movie, the character is she's been running and damaged her whole life. And the next gear for the character in H2O is I'm going to stop running and face this head on. I prefer the Carrie Tate version of Laurie Strode. Absolutely. For me. But here, here's what I here's something I find fascinating, and I want to know what you guys have to to say. I feel like the three of us are kind of on an island. The buzz and the things that I have been seeing, everyone else is saying, "Well, this movie renders H two O completely null and void. This is the best thing that has ever been made in the Halloween universe since the original." I I, I just feel like there has been an outsized outpouring of love for this film. I, I, I am not in any way saying that it's a bad entry in the Halloween franchise. It's not. But no. It is, it, no. it's just another entry in the Halloween franchise. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I have, I mean, and I'm sure you did over the weekend, Mitch, being a, a horror film festival, 
we have heard some people say they did not like it in the slightest. We have heard people say it was great, and then there's been, I would say, most people are in the eh, ambivalent camp. Yeah, in the in the mm. in the people that I have better that I was in that screening with, I would say that the adjective that most people seem to settle on was like serviceable. But in the kind of wider sphere of the f- like feedback and the stuff I've been reading, like other friends, social media, things like that. Um, yeah, you're right. I think I do feel a little bit on an island with it in some ways. I, th- I, yeah, I, I do feel that a little bit. I think, th- and I, I think that people are being way over abusive about it. And I don't like, and I don't like being this person ever. I don't, well, I, li- I don't like being the buzzkill. No, but... I, I'm not in any way right. being a buzzkill. I'm not saying to people don't go and see this. Like I say, I think it's a perfectly serviceable slasher film. Um, yes. For me, it's never going to replace Halloween Two as the follow-up to Halloween. It's never going Absolutely to... Absolutely not. For me, it's never going to be a better version of the damage Laurie Strode than Halloween H2O is. Absolutely agreed. Well, Absolutely it? agreed. Ha- Halloween H2O handles kind of long-form trauma mm-hmm. of these kind of things way better than this film does. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Well, yes. we know Laurie lives on her own. She is preparing for Michael's return. That's really all the damage we see. We see... Kerry Tate's damage far more in depth. Obviously, she's an alcoholic. She's in hiding. She's changed her name. Laurie Strode's still fucking Laurie Strode. In this film, you're. Right. Uh, I, I feel like you're told, and you can you you see by the way that she and Karen. That's Karen, right? Judy Gears, Judy Gears character. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. You see by the way that they interact with each other, and the way that Karen talks about Laurie, that their relationship has suffered. But what this film doesn't do, the H two O does do, because obviously you've got the kind of kind of romantic element in H2O as well. Alan Arkin. Yeah. Or Adam Arkin, sorry. Um, (laughs) But you see, um, you see in way more kind of, in a way more illustrative kind of fashion, how all of this has informed her relationships with other people. Yeah. And it it functions way better as a character piece for her than this does, I think. I would say the kind of corrupting relationship it's had on her relationship with Josh Hartnett's character in Halloween H2O is still better than the fractured relationship between Laurie and Karen in this new one. It's not given enough time in, in this movie. It's not given enough screen real estate for it to de- develop. Another point that you guys bring up, her alcoholism, in actually both movies, it seems like she has trouble with alcohol. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. a, she but, drinks in the car, doesn't she? Yep, yeah. and then, and then she, as soon as she gets into dinner with uh, Judy Greer and, and Allison, she's downing the wine and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I felt like in H2O, that scene that I that I said how much I loved last time, where she Arkin goes to the bathroom and she demands from the waiter another glass of Chardonnay, yeah. right? So this is a person who's hiding her alcoholism. There's something that just felt so authentic to me about that versus this where she's not even trying to hide. You know, she walks, she runs into the restroom and she gl- drinks somebody else's glass of wine. It just didn't feel like an authentic thing that someone – who is at least trying to put on a brave face would do it just it just felt not as true to me that kind of felt like this kind of bombastic character moment for the hell of it i don't think that i don't think they do anything with that i think that like that's not given any real kind of credence after you see it i don't think that you don't you don't see those problems affecting her outside of the moments where it's just being shown to you you know what i mean yeah yeah and for the record as well uh we i spoke to someone just today, who may or may not have been a guest on the show <laughs> at some point previously, who also isn't a fan. 
Yeah, um, Preston, I know that uh, just from when I saw you guys interacting with each other on Twitter around this, but uh, obviously we had Matt Mercer on doing The Curse oh, yeah. of Michael My- Myers. Oh, so you've just you've named him? I wasn't going to name him. I, I'm, well, I mean, <laughs> we all know who he is. Um, I'm sure I'm sure he won't mind. But yeah, um, he's, uh, he's a little cold on this too. So maybe it's not just us. So a lot of the conversations I had leading up to this, I'm going to give credit to two of my best friends, uh, my buddy Bill Ganap, who goes to all the horror movies with me out here, and my, my best friend and creative producing partner, Aaron Galligan Sturl, the three of us all, you know, downloaded in kind of the same way the three, the three of us are downloading now. Mm-hmm. And they, they are in line with how, how we were feeling. I just did, for whatever reason, the, re- the reviews of folks that I, that I was reading coming out of Fantastic Fest and coming out of Toronto were just effusive in their admiration. And, and I, I think the other thing is that we were just set up in a way this movie is not going to be business as usual. We've gotten this filmmaker who is known for his Sundance independent roots, who's not a horror filmmaker. We've got, you know, the the minds at Blumhouse at work on this movie. So I think what I'm bumping up against is that, I, and, and they go, we're wiping the slate clean. We're making a true companion piece to the original. This is going to be something elevated and better than anything you've seen before. And it wasn't that. I think I think that's the root of my disappointment is is that not that it was a poor slasher film, but that it did not deliver on the elevation that everyone was sort of promising us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And I, I do want to just touch very briefly on what we we're saying about the absolute ending of this film. Sure. So mm-hmm. obviously, so obviously uh, Michael kind of like there's a, a chain of events that ends with him kind of being stuck in the basement. He's fenced in there, and they basically set fire to the house, and he's stuck in there. And I think that <laughs> just that we also get a lovely shot of a maquette of the Myers house burning, which I just found really jarring. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah. Why the fuck has she got? Why would she have that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. I, I understand agree. fan service, and the film is littered with it. But that again, to me, just felt like a step too far. Yeah. Kids, no, kids in the Halloween three silver shamrock masks, I'm fine with. The cool. The, yeah. The corpse with the sheet with the eyes poked in it. Yeah. I'm fine with that's great. Yeah. But this one, I was mm-hmm. like, it didn't make sense to me. Yep. But see what you were saying about the the fact that it kind of shies away from going in either direction about whether or not he's alive or dead. Sure. And I think the thing that annoys me about that is that it seems like such a strange thing to concern yourself with because historically, the, like these films don't. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no problem with there being what appears to be a very final looking end. I mean, look at how Rob Zombie's ends. Rob Zombie's Halloween ends with Laurie Strode blowing his fucking head off. Yeah, and, it's, and I think that it's, it's, it's frustrating because the film kind of robs itself of having an ending that could have really had like a way more impactful ending with a punch that they didn't have to pull yeah yeah, yeah. yes i mean look this film has made probably by the by the time this comes out this film has made over a hundred million dollars at the box office oh it did right? it's it, yeah it was it was on shouting distance right. after the opening weekend yeah yeah so, uh, it, ultimately it doesn't matter a fuck what we do this film will have a sequel made by blumhouse and whichever route personally i hope they remake halloween 3 and they just do them all again uh, <laughs> but <laughs> We all know now at this point, this film is such a mad fucking success. There is no way on this earth that Blumhouse do not make a sequel to Halloween 2018. So what the fuck difference does it make if they go down the road where they do something crazy where it looks like Michael's dead or they do something crazy where Laurie Strode's dead and Michael strides off into the distance? Yeah, they're, they're going to talk it back around if they need to. They always do. And that's fine. And it's like, yeah, and I think that it's, it's frustrating that the end was so non-committal. Wishy-washy. It yes. It just, it feels, it feels like it was, it stayed on the fence when 
it really didn't have to. Yeah, it, 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 I, I think the, the, the problem that, that we're all talking about is it goes to a little clip I sent you, Mitch, from a behind-the-scenes thing on the Halloween H2O DVD yes. uh, called, a, called Unmasking the Horror. And in the clip, um, John Carpenter is talking about he sat down after Halloween was a massive success. He sat down to write Halloween H2O. He, what he said is, I discovered there was no more story to this idea. And he, he says something like, at 2 a.m. with a six-pack, I came up with this idea that he was the brother. And so that now we have a narrative reason that he is continuing to go after Laurie Strode. In this movie, now we're positing that he has no reason. He is just a shark. Yeah. And how that hurts the, the movie in terms of its narrative pulse, in my opinion. And how, how do we continue? What is, what is going to be the pretext for continuing this story other than just we're not continuing a story. We're making a slasher film every couple of years. And maybe, maybe that's going to be fine, and that's going to be fun. Maybe we're going to get back into, you know, how it was in the 80s, the Friday every year and a nightmare every couple of years, you know. Yeah. But let's now call that what it is, which is the, these are fun slashers, which are successful from a business standpoint, but it isn't, it isn't an elevated character piece about Laurie Strode. It's a fun slasher, you know. Yep. So for, for me, you know, the Halloween 78, Halloween 2 from 81, and H2O, those to me stand head and shoulders, and then you kind of have everything else. Uh, and then down at the bottom, I, I'm not a fan of the Rob Zombie take on the character, so for me, that's also sort of at, in a different league. But mm -hmm. this Halloween 18, to me, stands in the pack with four, five, six and eight you know it's it's not it's it's a slasher movie i really feel it has more in common with rob zombie's films than john carpenter's yeah it, it does although i i have to say i cared for it much more than i cared for the rob zombie take on the i character. do agree with that it, and i think it's important to say at this point i didn't hate this film by any i know we've maybe no been, me neither maybe absolutely quite harsh on it. i thought there was a lot to like in it i thought there was some great kind of set pieces i thought there was an in some introductions of some characters who if they never appear again in the franchise their appearance in this was enough and is funny enough that they'll be remembered mm -hmm. i didn't hate it i i think i came out and i said to you mitch it's a shaky six for me like i'll see how i feel when i kind of wake up in the morning yeah i think mm -hmm. I, I think it is probably because because yeah we've been we've been hammering pretty hard on some of the problems that I have there and i think it is probably worthwhile at this point to say that um yeah there were things that i enjoyed about this film and we've touched on a couple of them i think but it feels like for me it's an okay entry in the franchise that has a handful of memorable moments in there and i think that the things that i like about it are kind of more instantaneous things rather than actual narrative choices the film makes and things like that i think it's more kind of satisfying set pieces the stuff that i like about it is way less substantial than things that i don't yeah i, I it sounds to me like we're we're in lockstep guys i i feel i feel basically the same way yeah 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 so i guess we're kind of there with this um unless there's anything to add what I, <laughs> what I would say is despite the fact that i think that we've all kind of come out a little cold on this if there are more i'll like i want to see where they go with it Fucking right, yeah, absolutely.
Sure. Why not? Um, I, I would not have I would not have said that if we were talking about the Rob Zombie movies, you know, either after part one or part two, I would have said, please no more of this <laughs> after this. Yeah, sure. Let's ha- let's ha- let's have some fun. But you're not going to touch H1, H2, H2O for me. Yeah, uh, I guess we're there. Preston, thanks for taking the time to do this with us. Absolutely, guys. True pleasure to come back to share thoughts and uh, on this. Don't be a stranger. And- you're always welcome. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you. I look forward to hearing what you guys tackle next. It's always fun. Well, thank you, man. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much. So yeah, not the rapturous reception that some people might have, have expected. No, no, no. And a massive thanks again to Preston for coming back on to discuss this with us. Yeah, um, thanks to Preston for taking time out and putting himself in the firing line. Yep, and uh, arguably the funniest uh, 30 second synopsis we've had so far. Holy hell, that was amazing. Yeah. But- Sounded like the scat man. It was incredible, yeah. Or Snow, remember Snow, second former? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was exactly like that, yeah. I do want to take a second as well, of course. Preston's film Ruin Me is available on Shudder. It's a Shudder exclusive yep. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, get that watched. It's great. But yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, for and like so say, um, make up your own minds. That's just our opinions on Halloween. You don't have to agree with them. At the same token, you don't have to be a dick if you don't. Yeah, but also, I mean, let's discuss it. And if you do want to then there's loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram at Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can also email us at stronglanguageviolentscenes at gmail.com. Yep, and as you know, there's loads of places you can get us. You can get us at Stitcher, you can get us at iTunes, you can get us on Spotify, and just about anywhere else you get podcasts. And if you do listen on iTunes, please, please, please take the time to just rate and review and uh, please don't thumb us down just because we didn't like Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so we will, of course, be back this Friday at 8am for um, another full episode. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Join us for that if you can. In the meantime, don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chads. Good night. Good night. I thought you were going to say, I've got peanut butter on my penis. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.